If you would be a real seeker of the truth, it is necessary that at least once in your life you doubt as far as possible all things. Rene Descartes Hey guys, and welcome to Two Guys Searching for Truth on the Road That Never Ends. As always, I'm Credo. And I'm Glaucon. And on the show, our goal is simple. We want to take you on our journey from place to place, from era to era, to really put our ideas about the world and about ourselves to the test. And we hope by doing so, it will bring us closer to the truth, because it really does matter how we view the world. A quick disclaimer, the locations, topics, and ideas are solely for educational purposes and do not reflect in any way, sort, or kind the views of the hosts themselves. And with that, let's get on with the show. All right, so tonight we're going to be talking about Descartes, and we're probably going to do three or four episodes on Descartes. We're going to start by looking at this dedicatory letter to the Sorbonne, which is usually included in books covering the meditations. Descartes is a French Renaissance philosopher. He was alive from 1596 till 1650. He self-reportedly had a delicate health, had a weak constitution, and because of the weak constitution he had, he liked to sleep in, and he would sleep in till around noon, generally, And when he died in 1650, fairly young, he died in Sweden, and it was during the wintertime in Sweden. He was staying at the request of Queen Christina of Sweden in the royal household, and he would entertain the queen with conversations, and she would like to have these conversations very early in the morning. And he would have to get up when it was really cold, way, way before his normal time of waking up, and speak with the queen. And lots of people, I guess, think that is what led to his early demise, is waking up before his normal time of waking up in a cold environment, talking to Queen Christina. And he himself said that this place is so cold that a man's thoughts even freeze. Uh, A couple other things about Descartes before we start talking about the dedicatory letter to the Saban is that he is known to have been, by many people thought he was at least, a very egotistical person, had a very strong idea about his own qualities and about how intelligent he was. And he was extremely intelligent. He was a person that was on the cutting edge of physics at the time, which was called natural philosophy. And he is responsible for Cartesian coordinates, hence the name trigonometry, a lot of trigonometry, sine, cosine, that kind of stuff, linear algebra. So he was a mathematical genius. And he also did philosophical work. And he's, you know, some people say the most important figure of modern philosophy. And modern philosophy is the name that we give to the Renaissance period. So he's definitely a profound person in that sense. And so he was worried about what the church thought as probably a lot of thinkers were at this time, very concerned about what the church would do if they didn't like him, didn't like what he was saying or what he was thinking. You know, uh, Galileo had suffered a bad fate for his ideas and thoughts, and Descartes didn't want to suffer a similar fate. And he writes this letter to the Saban, kind of introducing his work in the meditations. 
And the kind of goal of the meditations, he says in the letter to the Saban, the primary goal of the meditations is to demonstrate that the soul is something that is separate from the body and as real as the body, more real than the body, really, and that God exists. And he wants to show these things through the use of logic or natural reason, philosophy. He doesn't want to rely on theology to demonstrate that these things are the case. And so that's the purpose of the meditations. That's at least one of the purposes of the meditations that Descartes talks about here in the letter to the Saban. So I'll just read a quote here from this letter. And this is just kind of saying what we were just talking about. I've always thought that two topics, namely God and the soul, are prime examples of subjects where demonstrative proofs ought to be given with the aid of philosophy rather than theology. For us who are believers, it is enough to accept on faith that the human soul does not die with the body and that God exists. But in the case of unbelievers, it seems that there is no religion and practically no moral virtue that they can be persuaded to adopt until these two truths are proved to them by natural reason. So here we see that he's, you know, he's pleading with the church, basically saying, you know, you should let me prove, you know, you should sanction this activity of me using philosophy to prove that God exists and that the soul is separate from the body. And the reason for that is that unbelievers are never going to accept religion or moral virtue until they can be persuaded of these two things. And so a couple things we can say about this is one thing is that this goes against Plato's view, which we talked about a long time ago now in the Euthyphro, because in the Euthyphro, the argument is something like the gods ground the moral. And if the gods don't ground the moral, the kind of next thing you're going to think is if there are no gods and there's nothing grounding the moral, right? And this is this kind of idea that we hear later on, post-modern thought, this idea that if God is dead, all things are permitted. But it's not necessarily the case, as we know from Plato, and even from utilitarianism, and from Kantian thought, it's not really the case that morality can't be grounded without God or the gods. But nonetheless, he's saying that this is the case. And then he goes on to say, it is of course quite true that we must believe in the existence of God, because it is a doctrine of Holy Scripture. And conversely, that we must believe Holy Scripture, because it comes from God. For since faith is the gift of God, he who gives us grace to believe other things can also give us grace to believe that he exists. But this argument cannot be put to unbelievers because they would judge it to be circular. And this is pretty comical, really, because the way he puts it, it sounds extremely circular. You know, he says, we have to believe that God exists because of Holy Scripture, and we have to believe in Holy Scripture because of God. And that is an extremely circular way to put this. And then he says, look, obviously we believe this. But the unbeliever can't think this way because they're going to say, look, that's a circular argument. And I mean, if we read between the lines here, it's basically Descartes saying this is a circular argument, right? And if we go on just a little bit further on down here, and in the same place in the passage, that which is known of God is manifest to them. We seem to be told that everything that may be known of God can be demonstrated by reasoning, which has no other source but our own mind. Hence, I thought it was quite proper for me to inquire how this may be, and how God may be more easily and more certainly known than things of this world. So here he's talking about some quotes from the Bible, where it's asserted that everything about the nature of God is already inside of me. And this is reminiscent, although this is coming from a biblical source, this is reminiscent of the kind of stuff we talked about with Plato, where the form of the good, that knowledge is already inside of us in some sense. So Descartes is carrying that torch here. 
And then we can go down a little bit further. This is all from the letter to the Saban. He says, now I can completely disagree with this. I think that when properly understood, almost all the arguments that have been put forward on these issues, and here we're talking about the existence of God, by the great men have the force of demonstrations. And I'm convinced that it is scarcely possible to provide any arguments which have not already been produced by someone else. So here he's saying that all of the arguments for the existence of God that have been put forward in the past are good arguments, and they have the force of demonstration. And it's not possible to come up with new arguments. So this is a pretty funny thing to say. And then he says, nevertheless, I think there can be no more useful service to be rendered in philosophy than to conduct a careful search once and for all for the best of these arguments and to set them out so precisely and clearly as to produce for the future a general agreement that they amount to a demonstrative proof. So here he's saying, I'm going to survey all of the historical arguments for the existence of God. I'm going to collect them all, take out the best parts of all of these arguments, synthesize them into a perfect proof that's going to have demonstrative force. And so here, you know, we're getting this from a mathematical genius. This is a person who understands the nature of geometry and the stuff we talked about before when we were comparing the form of the good and the other forms to this kind of geometric picture. So Descartes knows that what he's talking about here is something like a mathematical proof. So basically, a philosophical version of a mathematical proof. It needs to have the same force and power that a mathematical proof would have. So he wants to argue for the existence of God and for the soul to be separate from the body in such a powerful way that it's as good as a mathematical proof. Then he goes on to say, when I have done this, what I have done is to take merely the principal and most important arguments and develop them in such a way that I would now venture to put them forward as very certain and evident demonstrations. I will add that these proofs are of such a kind, they leave no room for the possibility that the human mind will ever discover better ones. Okay, so he's saying, this mathematical demonstrative proof that I'm going to give you is going to be so good that it's going to be hard to imagine that the human mind will ever be able to discover better ones. So this tells you something about what we were talking about earlier about the ego of Descartes, right? It's a pretty strong statement to say that the human mind will never be able to have any kind of better version of this than I'm going to give you. <laughs> but that's pretty much what he says here. So he goes on to say talking a little bit more about the relationship to mathematics. So he says here, but although I regard the proofs as certain and evident, I cannot therefore persuade myself that they are suitable to be grasped by everyone, right? So not everyone is capable of understanding what he's going to say. In geometry, there are many writings left by Archimedes, Apollonius, Pappus, and others, which are accepted by everyone as evident and certain because they contain absolutely nothing that is not very easy to understand when considered on its own. And each step fits in precisely with what has gone before. Yet because they are somewhat long and demand a very attentive reader, it is only comparative few people who understand them. In the same way, although the proofs I employ here are in my view as certain and evident as the proofs of geometry, if not more so, <laughs> it will, I fear, be impossible for many people to achieve an adequate perception of them, both because they are rather long and some depend on others, and also, above all, because they require a mind which is completely free from preconceived opinions and which can easily detach itself from the involvement of the senses. So, pretty interesting stuff. Pretty interesting stuff. And then he goes on and finishes this letter to the Saban with some more language that is meant to move the Saban to sanction his work, give his work 
their blessing, right? And he says, the reputation of your faculty is so firmly fixed in the minds of all, and the name of the Saban has such authority that with the exception of the sacred councils, no institution carries more weight than yours in matters of faith. While as regards human philosophy, you are thought of as second to none, both for insight and soundness of all the integrity and wisdom of your pronouncements. So here we see that, you know, you guys are the best. And he wants them to say that the work he's done here is good. And he wants them to, he says, because of this, the results of your careful attention to this book, if you deign to give it, would be threefold. First, the errors in it would be corrected. For when I remember not only that I'm a human being, but above all that I am an ignorant one, I cannot claim it is free of mistakes. Secondly, any passages which are defective or insufficiently developed or requiring further explanation would be supplemented, completed, and clarified either by yourselves, by me, or after having been given your advice. And lastly, once the arguments in this book proving the existence of God and that the mind is distinct from the body have been brought, I am sure they can be of such a pitch of clarity that they are fit to be regarded as a very exact demonstration. You'll be willing to declare as much and make a public statement to that effect. So he's saying, look, you're going to help me perfect this work. Once it's perfected, we can just make a pronouncement that this is the truth. And then he says some pretty comical stuff about atheists at the end here, which I have to read as well. He says, as for the atheists, who are generally posers rather than people of real intelligence or learning, your authority will induce them to lay aside the spirit of contradiction. And since they know that the arguments are regarded as demonstrations by all who are intellectually gifted, they may even go so far as to defend them rather than appear not to understand them. <laughs> so pretty comical stuff. Anyway, that's the letter to the Saban. So I just like to read that whenever I'm going to talk about Descartes or think about Descartes or have a conversation about Descartes. I actually was interested in the fact that it almost seems like the way that Descartes wants to break down not only his proposal to the Sorbonne, but as we move into the meditations, kind of break down the idea or notions that were popular at the time of God, basically all the way down to, you know, what can I truly believe is actually true. It almost seems like it's the way that Plato did that with Thrasymachus's argument for the nature of justice, right? That instead of the straw man fallacy, right? He actually wants to get to the heart of it and try to put forth the best thing he can. That's absolutely right. I mean, Descartes definitely makes a very strong argument here for the other side. And what's interesting, actually, about the sort of historical view of the meditations is that people think that he did too good of a job, actually, with the doubt stuff and can't really recover from the doubt argument to get God back. And, and that'll make more sense once we talk about it, but it is a good point. He's definitely fair in that sense. So how does he move into it? Like, I mean, how does he start questioning all of his beliefs? Yeah, so let's take a look at it. So meditation one. So we start off here, and the whole purpose of meditation one is to call into doubt everything that can possibly be doubted. At least that's how it starts, right? And so we have this quote here in the beginning of Meditation 1. It says, I realized that it was necessary once in the course of my life to demolish everything completely and start again right from the foundations if I wanted to establish anything at all in the sciences that was stable and likely to last. So here, this idea is kind of the idea that if I want to have something dependable that I can really rely on in my thinking, then I'm going to need to look through all the different things in my mind and test everything in my mind and see what can hold up to scrutiny and what can't, right? And so this isn't something I think that lay people are going to commonly do, but it is something that people 
reflective people and philosophers in the course of their kind of studies or the, in the course of their education naturally do. And that is they kind of have to kind of like reflect on what they believe is the case. And then over time, they slowly start to realize, wow, there's a whole bunch of things that I think were the case, I thought were true, that turned out not to be true. And so this is kind of a gradual process that philosophers go through. And we know historically that there were a lot of skeptics in philosophy, right? And we, I think we've mentioned this before. Socrates is famous for saying, you know, I'm wise because I realize that I don't know much. And also David Hume, highly skeptical person, and there were lots of other skeptics. And Descartes is putting forward a highly powerful skeptical argument here in the meditations. And so what Descartes wants to do is he wants to use a method to kind of more quickly dispatch ideas that are not dependable, that have any kind of doubt. And so he comes up with this thought experiment that allows him to more quickly remove ideas that are subject to doubt, right? And so here he goes on to say, I am here quite alone. And at last, I will devote myself sincerely and without reservation to the general demolition of my opinions. And so when we talked about the allegory of the cave, we talked about how most of what human beings had access to was in the realm of opinion. And then there was maybe some part of what they thought that was actually true, part of the form of the good. And that's the stuff that Descartes is looking for here. And he wants to remove all of the stuff that's subject to doubt. And he goes on to say, reason now lends me to think that I should hold back my assent from opinions which are not completely certain and indubitable, just as carefully as I do from those which are patently false. So here he's saying, I only want to find an idea that is absolutely certain. If something is subject to any amount of doubt, if there's any uncertainty about it, I'm going to put it to the side and it's not going to be a candidate for something that's totally dependable. And then he goes on to say, once the foundations of a building are undermined, anything built on them collapses of its own accord. So here, this is kind of what I was talking about, where he wants to do this speeded up method of undermining any possible views that he has that could be doubted. And he goes on to say, whatever I have up till now accepted as most true, I have acquired either from the senses or through the senses. But I have found that the senses deceive. And it is prudent never to completely trust those who have deceived us even once. So here he's saying that most of our knowledge seems to come from the senses, right? And we talked about this before a little bit, right? We talked about this idea that empiricists believe all knowledge comes from the senses. Rationalists believe that at least some knowledge comes from inside of us or from some source other than the senses. And so what Descartes saying here is a direct attack on the empiricists. He's saying... If it comes from the senses, we know that the senses sometimes deceive us. And since the senses sometimes deceive us, we can't really trust what comes through the senses. And so then he goes on with this kind of pretty funny thing here. He says, although the senses occasionally deceive us, there are many other beliefs about which doubt is quite impossible, even though they are derived from the senses. So the first argument is, look, the senses sometimes deceive us. We get stuff in from the senses. We shouldn't trust it because the senses are deceptive. But then he says, but hold on a second. There are lots of things that come through the senses that we don't doubt, that aren't really open to doubt. And he gives us an example. He says, I'm here, sitting by the fire, wearing a winter dressing gown, holding this piece of paper in my hands, and so on. So here he says, look, it's stupid to doubt that I'm sitting here right now, holding this piece of paper in my hands, dressed in my winter dressing gown. And then he says, how often asleep at night am I convinced of just such familiar events 
that I'm here in my dressing gown, seated by the fire, when in fact I am lying undressed in bed. So here we get the first real test. Well, it could be a dream. This could all be a dream. And since I'm systematically deceived when I'm dreaming, and I think that a dream is actually really happening, this right now could be a dream and it could be really happening, right? Any thoughts about that? Yeah. So, I mean, one thing I was thinking, so you're right. It does kind of seem a little ridiculous in the beginning. So for example, what if someone asks, why is this even important? Why is this relevant or necessary? I mean, to some degree, don't we all have to continue living our lives, you know, believing that uh, this world does exist, that all this is real, that our senses are not deceiving us? This is a great point. And this is actually something that David Hume talks about because David Hume, who's an empiricist, has this argument that we don't really have evidence for a continuing self. And this is kind of similar to the Buddhist idea that we don't have a self. And similarly, they kind of have an empiricist view, actually, it turns out. But so what David Hume says about this is that when he does philosophy uh, and he thinks about these things, he can become really melancholic and get this like horrible kind of depression that kind of overtakes him. And then a couple hours later, he's shooting pool and drinking beer with his friends and it's just completely gone away. It's out of his mind. And so what's funny about that statement by David Hume is that, you know, it's kind of capturing what you're saying there. It's like, sure, I mean, in a sense, what you're saying could be true, but we have to go on living. <laughs> we have to keep going on living. And so we're not going to be like constantly worried. Is this a dream or something like that? Which is true. But the real reason Descartes doing this is because he wants to undermine our idea that the world of experience is the most real thing. And this goes back to the allegory of the cave. So this is kind of like Descartes saying, look, I'm just trying to shake people up that are chained to their seats in the cave and get them to turn their heads back, right? And so that's kind of what Descartes doing here with the dream conjecture. He's trying to say, look, you know, these things aren't as real as they appear to be. They could be a dream after all. So they can't be things that we take for granted as being absolutely true. So that's what he's trying to undermine there. I think that's a really good point. Thanks for adding that. I almost see it as like a response to the Euthyphro dilemma in some ways, right? Because he realizes that his beliefs are pitted between two things. Either he accepts that it's subjective and then there's no basis, right? Or he tries to ground it in some sort of rationality. And it sounds like that's what he's trying to do. And you can't do that if, you know, there's one bad apple in his foundation. of Right. Beliefs. No, that's a good point. That's a good point. And so what's, what's interesting about this dream conjecture argument, obviously we see it in Hollywood, right? So with Inception, that was a dream idea directly, but also in the Matrix, we have this kind of dream idea. And we'll talk about that more a little bit later. But ancient philosophers also thought about this idea. And uh, Chuangzi, a Taoist philosopher, actually is famous for having thought about this a long time before Descartes did. And he asked this question about, you know, earlier I was dreaming that I was a butterfly, and now I'm awake, convinced I'm a philosopher, but couldn't I be you know, a butterfly that's dreaming, I'm a philosopher right now, <laughs> you know, so this kind of idea, you know, and, and when I first heard that argument, you know, I thought, eh, yeah, well, maybe, but it just doesn't make sense to think that I would be dreaming I'm a butterfly and then be thinking like I'm a butterfly with like butterfly history, butterfly memories and like a butterfly life. And so I kind of dismissed this Chuanza Taoist argument when I first heard it. And it's pretty funny, a few years later after that, I had a dream that I was a beetle and I was like this big beetle with these claws and I was in this battle with this other beetle and we were like snipping each other's legs off and stuff. And it was a very, very vivid dream. And I woke from that dream and I was like, whoa, 
Chuanza was right. <laughs> it is possible to have these dreams of being an insect without human memories and with a kind of like insect state of mind. So it was a, it was a pretty bizarre experience, but it did cause me to kind of reassess my view of Chuanza's thought experiment there. So are there any things then? Uh, I'm just curious, you know, is there anything that he believes that you cannot doubt? Like, is there anything certain, at least in the first meditation, that he wants to point out? So what he says at this point is pretty interesting. He says, as I think about this more carefully, I see plainly that there are never any sure signs by means of which being awake can be distinguished from being asleep. So as we were saying, this could all be a dream. But then interestingly enough, even though this is a dream, there are things which we can be sure of. And he goes on and says, at least these general kinds of things, eyes, head, hands, and the body as a whole, are things which are not imaginary, but are real and exist. Although these general kinds of things, eyes, head, hands, and so on, could be imaginary, it must be at least admitted that certain other, even simpler and more universal things are real. So something real has to be used to kind of get these ideas into our minds, these general ideas. And so now this starts to really sound like Plato and the theory of forms, because here we get this idea that these things that we are experiencing are really copies of more real things. And this is like the idea of shadows, right? And then he goes on to say, so a reasonable conclusion from this might be that physics, astronomy, medicine, and all other disciplines which depend on the study of composite things are doubtful, while arithmetic, geometry, and other subjects of this kind, which deal only with the simplest and most general things, regardless of whether they really exist in nature or not, contain something certain and indubitable. For whether I'm awake or asleep, two and three added together are five, and a square has no more than four sides. Right? So he's responded to the dream conjecture. So we have the dream level of doubt, and the response to the dream level of doubt is, look, even if I'm dreaming, a square has four sides, a human being has a human shape, and two plus two equals four. But then he goes on and introduces even more doubt. He says, how do I know that God has not brought it about, that there is no earth, no sky, no extended things, no shape, no size, no place? while at the same time ensuring that all these things appear to me to exist just as they do now. So what if God manufactured these basic ideas that we're building these things from? In other words, God is, in some sense, deceiving us, right? So then he goes on to say, But if it were inconsistent with his goodness to have created me such that I am deceived all the time, it would seem equally foreign to his goodness to allow me to be deceived even occasionally. Then he says a very interesting thing. He says, yet this last assertion cannot be made. And why can this last assertion not be made? Because humans are systematically deceived. So in other words, God did create us such that we are deceived. So we actually can't make this argument. So he throws this argument out that, well, we can't think that God would systematically deceive us because of his goodness. But if he wouldn't systematically deceive us, why would he allow us to be deceived even sometimes? And he certainly does allow us to be deceived even sometimes. So it's kind of a, an interesting sort of thing that he throws in here. You know, once again, reading between the lines with the statements he made to the Saban there. I think at the end of the day, we don't really know whether Descartes is a theist or a Christian or even possibly an agnostic, really. But that's a harder thing to answer. A lot of evidence points to him being a Christian, but sometimes I wonder. Then he goes on to say, according to their supposition, then I've arrived at my present state by fate or chance or a continuous chain of events or by some other means. So here we get the atheist argument, right? By fate or chance or a continuous chain of events. So just cause and effect has given rise to my existence. 
just chance or fate. I'm just a universal accident, which is kind of the view of being the product of some amino acid soup on a planet that's struck by lightning. Then he goes on to say, yet since deception and error seem to be imperfections, the less powerful they make my original cause, the more likely it is that I am also imperfect as to be deceived all the time. He's saying here, if you don't believe in God, the less powerful you make God, the more likely you are to be systematically deceived about reality. So that means that if you're an atheist, you, should, you, could, you might as well just be a complete skeptic about all knowledge and not believe anything that you're even experiencing, according to Descartes here. And so he goes on to say, I must withhold my assent from the former beliefs just as carefully as I would from my obvious falsehoods if I want to discover any certainty. I shall do this until the weight of preconceived opinion is counterbalanced and the distorting influence of habit no longer prevents my judgment from perceiving things correctly. I will suppose, therefore, that not God, who is supremely good and the source of truth, but rather some malicious demon of the utmost power and cunning has employed all his energies in order to deceive me. So now we get the last skeptical argument, right? This is much worse than the dream conjecture. Now we have a malevolent being who's systematically trying to deceive me. And uh, in other words, God, the power of God, but the will to deceive me. And then he goes on to say, I shall consider myself as not having hands, eyes, or flesh, or blood, or senses, but as falsely believing that I have all these things, because they are open to doubt. It is possible that an evil genius is controlling the world and systematically causing me to perceive things as true that are false. And so I have to call everything into doubt, apparently. And so the end of the first meditation, I'm left in this horrible state of despair. Okay, guys, so that was really interesting, I hope, to uh, most of you. It's something where we see Descartes starts out by saying that he can trust his senses, but then realizes that the senses can deceive. We've all experienced that if things are far away or if you stick a stick in water or something like that. And then he says, but there are certain things my senses tell me that must be true. And then he says, but then again, I could be dreaming because how do I know I'm not dreaming, right? And then he moves into the last part, which is like, yeah, but even if I'm dreaming, Look, there's got to be some basis in geometry or the fact that, I mean, my own body taking up space, what he refers to as extension, that has to be real. And then he says, but what if I'm fooled by a malicious demon? And so it kind of is a really good dive into us getting to think about which beliefs we can actually know for certain. And, you know, you have to think about how difficult it would be to be in his position or anyone's position to actually honestly suspend your judgment, suspend your belief about these things, which I think is just impressive. And I think we should all take a second to respect that. And we'll move into this into the next episode as well, episode 12, as we go to the second meditation and then, you know, a couple episodes after that. But we just want to inspire you in your search for truth. Just keep in mind complexities and we'll see you next time as we search for truth on the road that never ends. <music>